All right, so we looked at last week spiritual gifts. If you're in Romans 12, you can kind of run your eyes back up and look at verses 3 to 8 there, where we're talking about different types of spiritual gifts that manifest themselves in the church. But spiritual gifts are to be accompanied with the right attitude. You, you can't be effective in your service in the church if you have a wrong attitude. Uh, we know how important love is, for example, right? And what is your spiritual gift without love? Nothing. It's, it's a clanging gong, that's right. So we're going to look at today 11 traits, and there are different ways to break it up. I, I'm counting 11 today. 11 traits that make for healthy church body life. Kind of like what we looked at in 1 Corinthians recently. And as we go through this, maybe it would be helpful for you to put stars where you need to focus. Something that maybe convicts you today or something that provokes your thinking. Just put a little star or something there next to it and go do a deeper study on that this week. And for some of these, it seems like it's pretty obvious. Like the very first one that's in our list today. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy or let love be genuine. <laughs> Well, that seems pretty obvious, right? Well, uh, we need to really dwell on that because it might not be as obvious as you think. I also want you to bear in mind the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 and 2, which are very important verses for the Christian life. Keep those in mind as we study through this because verses 1 and 2 are kind of like the rudder for this big ship here, okay? Uh, we are to consider our lives as a living sacrifice to God, and that's why we're called to live in these ways. And the first one that you see there is let love be without hypocrisy, or uh, I've actually, <laughs> I made the worksheet and I studied in the New American Standard, but I brought the ESV with me up here this morning, so this might get interesting. Uh, ESV says let love be genuine, and that's what that means, to be genuine, let love be genuine or true, sincere, uh, and as we think about Christian love, Christian love is also unconditional, isn't it? We know that God has showed, shown us unconditional love. So genuine, true, sincere, unconditional love should define the fellowship. That means there's no hidden motives. You're not out for selfish gain, or to use a good older King Jamesy kind of word uh, in the qualifications for elders, not for sordid gain. We should not be out for sordid, <laughs> selfish, personal advancement. But our focus should be totally on serving the other person. Here's a really short quote from James Stifler. He said, Feigned love is nothing but disguised hate. Feigned love is nothing but disguised hate. And what is hypocritical love? Well, it's just disguised hate. That's all it is. Think of the hypocrisy of a, a bald man trying to sell you, sell you hair growth treatment. Hey. <laughs> Are you doing that now, Mark? <laughs> or a, a faith healer with glasses. Okay. It's uh, hypocritical, isn't it? It's not genuine. It's not sincere. It's not true. It, there are hidden motives there. Now, answer me this. In what ways does hypocritical love manifest itself in the church? Okay, can you think of some ways that might be temptations for the church in all generations at all times where you might see non-genuine? Ingenuine? Ungenuine? I don't know the right prefix for that. When non-genuine love or hypocritical love, what ways? I'll pray for you. Oh. How is that hypocritical? That's a good thing, right? To pray for somebody? Yeah. <laughs> and you don't. No. <laughs> and never intended to? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. Never intended to. Okay. What else? Rex? I think it, you're one way in church and you're another when you're out in the community somewhere and they may see you. I experienced it myself years ago, but here because it's a show on love. And then you see the person somewhere else, it's not the same. Yes, we're speaking, perhaps speaking loving words about someone to their face there and then outside of church, yeah, and talk trash about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as you start thinking about this, there are lots and lots and lots of ways this can happen, right? Where we show hypocritical love. And that's not befitting. For the church of God, for the family of God, is it? That is not, that just isn't fitting at all. Someone got Revelation 2, verses 1 to 4? Okay, um, read verses 1 to 3 and then stop, if you would, okay? Yeah. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. All right. Christ is saying to the church in Ephesus, you can spot false teachers. Great. You call them out. Good job. You're working hard for my name and you haven't grown weary. That's an amazing compliment. You haven't grown weary. That's wonderful. When you think of what Jesus would say about our church, if if his list started off with those things, we'd be like, hey, okay. We thought we were feeling pretty good that we were doing okay. We were pretty confident that we were on the right track, but that's amazing. And then verse 4. Go ahead, Walker. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Mm -hmm. I have this against you. Now, to hear those words from Jesus. I have this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Wow. Well, love for God, love from God, that leads to love for others. It's a general sentiment. Let love be genuine. Let love be without hypocrisy. And if we don't have that, then nothing else matters, right? That's a pretty big, big one. Well, let's move on to the second one. We've got to go at a fast clip today. I've grouped together uh, the second part of verse 9, abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good, rejecting evil, clinging to good. This means when you reject evil, you are detesting what the Lord detests. I like that word, detest. You detest what the Lord detests. And you hold on to what he holds on to. You hold on to what he has made plain, evident, primary, what he has shown to be good, what he has shown to be his will. And if you consider what our relationship with evil is supposed to be, we have a great verse right here in Romans 16, 19. Someone have that? Romans 16, 19? I got it. Okay, go ahead. Um, oh, 19? Yep. Uh, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Be wise in what is good. And what's our relationship with evil supposed to be according to that verse? The innocent concerning evil. Think of uh, two magnets uh, and you have the polar opposites facing each other. It's just the innocent concerning evil. That is to be our, our goal, our motive, to not to be ignorant of evil. That should be our desire in the Christian life. And it's a true statement that love hates as we consider the last Instruction to love without hypocrisy. Did you know that true love hates? Love hates evil. Love hates what the Lord hates. True love detests what God detests. And so we're to be glued to that which is good, to cling or to cleave to that which is good, to be hitched. From, I don't know, does anybody say that anymore? Getting hitched? A couple people get hitched? Nah. <clears throat> well, we are to be hitched as God's church. To good. How are we supposed to know what we are to to be joined with here? How do we know that in the Christian life? If we're to be clinging to what is good, how do we know what is good? Don't think too hard. What God says is good. Okay. Any dissenting opinions on that? (laughs) What God says is good, right? We look into God's word. We we read letters like this letter to the church in Rome. And we're reading here all kinds of things about what is evil, what is good. Go back to chapter 1, and we've got a lot of information about what God calls evil, what we are to reject. And as we keep reading now, we're getting into Romans 12. Look at all these amazing things we're told that are good. Lots and lots of things. Number three, the third trait, devotion to one another. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. This means we are to have a familial affection toward one another. Now, some of you come from families where there wasn't much affection. Some of you come from families where you, uh, especially maybe looking back, you don't have much affection for them. All right? So we're not talking about what might be reality for you. We're talking about what it should be. We're, co- we're talking about how God designed our relationships, our family relationships to work. We're to have familial affection toward one another, and that defines our relationship as Christians. There are a lot of times around here where guys say to one another, bro or brother, and that's good. 
That's what we are, right? And you women can say sister to one another, and brothers can call sister sister, and vice versa, because we're a family. We are to be devoted to one another with this brotherly affection, not just any general affection, but brotherly affection. And I would go as far to say that this may be the biggest issue in the American church among true believers, that there's no brotherly affection for one another. It is so individualistic. It's so just about me. You don't really have the mindset in most American churches that you're coming into a family meeting when you meet together. But you come in with the mindset of, well, I just need this for me today. (laughs) And they're going to do this for me so I can get this for me and then I'm going to leave. That is not devoted to brotherly affection, is it? That is devoted to self. That's what that is. But when we gather, this really is a family meeting. We are God's family Coming together. Let's look at Romans 16, just a couple of pages over. Romans 16, verses 3 to 5. Look at these great examples of brotherly affection. This is amazing. Who can read Romans 16, 3 to 5? Who's got it? Me. In the NLT, give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, they once risked their lives for me. I am thankful to them, so they are all... The Gentile churches also give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Epiphanes, and he was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. All right, there are two items here that are ascribed to Priscilla and Aquila. Prisca and Aquila. What two things can you point to here where it shows their brotherly affection for God's people? Two things. They risk their own lives. In, uh, I think, New American Standard and the ESV here, it says, they risk their necks. Obviously, that's a colloquialism for they put their lives on the line. What's the other thing listed here? They opened up their own home for church meetings. And we just talked about them in 1 Corinthians because they did the same thing in Corinth. And then they did the same thing in Ephesus. Isn't that amazing? They opened up their own home. That's what you do for family members, right? Salesman comes by, knocks at the door, and you you stand in the door, doorway. (laughs) You don't say, come on in, let's meet. Uh, Some neighbors come by, you do the same thing, don't you? When the family of God comes by, is it like a family member? You would never leave a family member out in the cold on the front step, right? Come on in. Come get warm. Come sit. That is the relationship. It's a brotherly affection. If someone from your blood family calls and says, I need you, think of that response that you have. Brother, sister, mother, father, son, daughter, grandchild, I need you. Now think someone from your spiritual family calls. And I don't know how often we do this, but we should. We should rely on one another and say, I need you today. You should have that same sort of feeling that comes up. I remember, uh, I, I hadn't been here very long. This was probably 2015, maybe 2014. I was on my way, and it was probably 2014, Christmas time. I was headed up to my job in Orem, and it was dark. It was like 6.30 in the morning, and I hit a Christmas tree. <laughs> I hit a Christmas tree on the interstate. <laughs> Who does that happen to? <laughs> And uh, the branch went through and punctured some important internal organs on my mercury sable. And so, uh, who, who did I know to call but Jerry Bowman and Scott Lance? <laughs> and, and they worked together. They took care of me at 6.30 in the morning on a weekday. And that's the type of affection we should have toward one another whenever we get that call is, I'm there for you, brother. I'm there for you, sister. And Jesus offers massive encouragement on this point in Mark chapter 10. Does somebody have Mark 10, 28 to 31? Go ahead. Peter said to him, we have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one has, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or friend, or friend feels for me and the gospel will fail to receive them. A hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, friends, and fields, children, fields, and with them uh, persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. 
but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Wow, there's a lot to consider. I want to preach on that sometime soon. That's a great passage. Um, Jesus says, those who have left all for him will receive more in this present age. He makes the statement there, in this present age. Now, does that mean that everyone's going to have a lot of people surrounding them, a hundredfold more surrounding them? He even included fields. You left your farmland. Are you going to get a hundredfold more of farmland in this age? So Jesus here isn't saying you're literally going to get health, wealth, prosperity. But when you consider what you have, the joy that comes from your assurance of salvation, the peace and comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit, God himself, dwelling in you, working through you, the church that God has made you a part of, the communion of the saints together, is that not a hundredfold better than any farmland? Yeah, you better believe it. And so Jesus has promised such great things for following him. And an aspect of that is the brothers and sisters that we have in the church. When I first became a believer, tell you what, they were my family. This is something I learned from day one. I didn't have a time gap. Day one, I knew the church was my family. They were my mothers and fathers from day one. Because I didn't have a mother at all at that point. I didn't have a godly father. I had no siblings. I've never had a sibling Except for seven hours of my life when I was three years old. My sister only lived seven hours. And so I was in the family of God. And just God gave me that brotherly affection for them. And I'm so thankful for the big C church and especially for this local church. Mr. Bowman. Well, I was very conscious of that verse when I was moved to California. So I already left my local family and my few friends there because I wasn't a very friendly person when I was a kid. <laughs> anyway, I was conscious of that because I was going from, I gave up my summer of earning a little money, dollar fifty an hour, to go to Alaska to be a summer missionary there. And uh, while looking back, you know, there's just so many people that I could still just knock on their door to this day and they would invite me in and we'd have a relationship because we already have one that may be on pause, but yeah, it's, it's just amazing how that just is multiplied. When I went to Winnipeg, I remember one of the guys I knew from my first summer in Alaska was from Steinbeck, Manitoba, and I drove right by there. It's just really cool, to, but that has followed me the rest of my life. And every, place that I have moved, which I moved a little bit more when I was young. But still, it's, it does give you, and it's not just limited to non-material relationships either. Yes. Because I have, I have lived off of everything that has happened off of that. One of the things that eternity will be good about, that we'll be able to understand how all those relationships got interconnected you with people and things because alive, stay alive this whole life. Yes. And there'll be an infinite amount more that we have no clue of what happened at the same time. Indeed. Yeah. And I would be remiss if I didn't highlight that this says in verse 10 that this is a, if you're using the New American Standard, it says, be devoted to one another in or with brotherly love. ESV says, love one another with brotherly affection. This isn't be devoted to the idea of brotherly love. <laughs> Make yourself available for brotherly love so that way, just whenever, you know, you can express it. The command or the instruction here is actually be devoted to one another. So Joseph is devoted to Walker, who's devoted to Joe, who's devoted to Tyler. We're devoted to one another. As a matter of lifestyle, not just to this idea of brotherly affection. That's very important because we're devoted to real people, not to vague ideas. That's, that's God's church, okay? And, and look at the next statement that is coupled with it. Outdo one another in showing honor, ESV says. Someone read from the NASB on that one. Verse 10. Yeah, the second half. 
Please give, give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another. So there are two different ways to translate this. It could be outdo one another in showing honor or give preference to one another in honor. And they have slightly different meanings, but they also kind of mean the same thing. Someone pick up Philippians 2, 3 for us. But the, the big idea here is considering each other more honorable than yourself. You consider your brother, your sister, more honorable than yourself. And one of my favorite verses from the New Testament, Philippians 2, 3. What does it say? Who's got it? Okay, go ahead. Do nothing for selfish ambition or or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant, more important, more honorable than yourselves. Ooh, that could be hard. <laughs> <laughs> it is hard. Yeah. But that is the great calling on the Christian life. What is love? Love is considering other people as more important than yourself. That's sacrificial love. This means to yield to somebody else, to give first place to somebody else, to let somebody go on ahead, or you go on ahead of them and bestow honor as they enter the room. You seek to bestow respect. It's totally the opposite of pride, isn't it? Because what does pride do? Looks inward. I'm number one. I'm most important. I'm most honorable. It's the opposite of that. You think back to the Old Testament and Jonathan and David's friendship that they had. Three times in the Old Testament it says that Jonathan loved David even as he loved himself. That's giving preference to one another in honor. Now we're not always going to be as close as Jonathan and David. Not all of us, obviously. Um, we're not going to have those close kinds of friendships with every single person. But the general idea is there in all of our Christian relationships that we count one another as more important than ourselves. What keeps us from bestowing honor on other Christians as we should, as you think about that? What keeps us from doing this? Well, our, it's going to take something from us. Our time, resources. Is the sacrifice then, you mean? Sacrifice. The pain of sacrifice. Judgment. Judgment? In what way? Judging our brothers and sisters and what they do in their life and how they live it. Not worthy of our honor? Comparing it to, well, I wouldn't have done that. I would do this instead. I don't know why they're doing it that way. Uh They said this, they did that. That kind of stuff. Uh Good. Anything else? Not doing them as God's. Uh, God's child, viewing them with that understanding of who they are. Um, and it, it goes along with what Dean judged them on an earthly basis and not in a positional basis. So they're, they're in Christ, they're, in a, they're a part of the family of God. And uh, Joseph said it would be very difficult to flesh out, um, but if we can. Um, try to have that understanding of they were part of God's family uh, and the spiritual side of it. It, it should uh, help us trump what being the same as far as the human side. The human side doesn't determine anything, right? Well, if we thought about how does God view that, that child of his? And sought to match our view of that person with God's view of that person. You think that would change the way we treat one another? Andy. So I think for me personally, my hardest one is with people that I know closely. Because I know their foibles, I know their sins. And it's something that I have to keep in the forefront of my mind that love hopes all things. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That's that's hard. It absolutely is. And that's coming up, uh, if we can get there today, <laughs> uh, hoping. No, no, it's no, it's my fault, not yours. I, I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote on this subject, talking about how giving preference to one another in honor is anti-pride. He writes, so what is the doctrine that is put before us in these various verses that we have just looked at? Well, this is how the apostle clearly works it out in his own case. 
First, he marvels that he is a Christian at all. And we all ought to marvel at this. If we ever lose our sense of wonder at the fact that we have ever become Christians, we are, in a sense, already victims of this disease of pride. We must never lose the sense of wonder. Why are we different? There's only one answer. It is entirely the result of the grace of God. And I love this line. So you start with that, and then you are already 75% on the way of the solution to this problem. (laughs) 75%. Okay. Next one, verse 11. ESV says, do not be slothful in zeal. I think New American Standard says, not lagging in diligence. Is that what it says? That's pretty interesting. Well, that word for diligence or zeal, we just saw it last week. Look back up at verse 8. It says, the one who leads is to lead with diligence or with zeal. That is how leaders are to lead. It's the same word that we just looked at. It's an earnestness toward service, to be seriously committed to something. It's commitment and conviction that leads to action. You've got commitment and you've got conviction. Those would probably be the other way around. You have conviction that leads to commitment to action. Paul is saying, don't hesitate to care for one another. Don't hesitate to serve one another with the ways that you've been equipped to serve. Christians are not to be lazy. Christians are not to be slothful in their service. Now, we all have different temperaments, right? Some people are more go-getters and some people are more melancholy, you could say. (laughs) Within the temperaments that we have... Within these temperaments, though, we are to have zeal, no matter what your personality type is. You are not to be slothful, but you are to keep pressing on with that amazing love, the gospel love, driving you all the way. S. Lewis Johnson wrote this. This, this one might, might pierce a little deep. It is true that many business people are on fire for their business, but are at the same time all ice for the business of the Lord. We spend long hours in business to get ahead, concentrate for most of our waking days on how to make our business bigger, go to sleep with plans for our work buzzing in our minds, but in the meantime, reserve a few hours on Sunday for the most important work of all, the work of the Lord." We occupy ourselves with the temporalities and neglect the eternalities. May God enable us to be diligent in our work, diligent in our play, and especially diligent in the spiritual things of the Lord. It's a good quote. I want to look at the life of Tychicus real briefly with these three passages. You see there are three passages listed there. And uh, so some, someone grab those, or not, one person for each, uh, to look at. Tychicus, and you can pronounce his name Tychicus. Okay, there you go. Tychicus, something like that. Um, Let's start with uh, Ephesians 6, and I want you to listen for this quality in his life, not lagging in diligence, or as, again, as the ESV says, to be... uh, not to be slothful in zeal. Okay, let's consider the life of Tychicus, starting with Ephesians 6, 21 and 22. Rex, go ahead. Tychicus. Tychicus. Oh, I didn't see that. Sorry, it's very, very light. Okay. That guy. Dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. I am sending you to him, I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage you. Peace to the brothers, and love, and faith, with faith in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord, Jesus Christ, with all undying love. Alright, so Paul is writing this letter to Ephesus, and he says, I'm sending Tychicus to you. He's going to remind you of some very important things. Colossians 4, 7 to 8. Who's got that? Take a look. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. 
All right. So to the church in Colossae, Paul writes, I'm sending Tychicus to you, and he's going to tell you some really important stuff. Okay, and then Titus 3, 12 to 14. Who's got that? Titus 3, 12 to 14. Jerry. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zanus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All right. Again, Tychicus is on the list as someone who is coming their way to Crete. So Ephesus, Colossae, Crete, these aren't exactly a tri-city area on a map kind of set up here. Tychicus was somebody who made himself available for ministry and was being sent to go to churches and remind them of very important things. That's a cool ministry that Tychicus had, isn't it? He shows up in various places being diligent in zeal, being committed to the work of the Lord. Okay, fifth trait. We are not going to finish this today, I don't think. Fifth trait is there in verse 11. Be fervent in spirit. Be fervent in spirit. Now, what does that mean? Be fervent in spirit. You could say this means to be ardent. Does that help? (laughs) You could say it means to have unction. Does that help? (laughs) Ambitious. Okay, that's a decent word. Well, it's to be stirred up. This word for fervent actually means to boil. There you go. To have a spirit that boils. Pretty interesting. It doesn't, don't associate that with getting angry, okay? That's typically what we do. Um, but it doesn't mean getting angry all the time. But it means to be stirred up, to have a, a spirit that imparts good, to have righteous energy. Have you ever been around somebody with righteous energy that's like almost contagious? You walk away from that interaction, and you're like, okay, I'm ready to do something. Um, there have been people in my life who have made me better that way. There are a few, and boy, I just love being around those people. You walk away like, I'm ready for something. That, that person was fervent in spirit, and it's like, I caught it. I caught a bit of it. I think Apollos is a good example in the New Testament for this. He was fervent in spirit, it says in Acts 18. He was a young preacher of the gospel, and he was fervent in his spirit. He was a powerful preacher, it says, when he was there uh, preaching in, in Corinth. John Wesley, interestingly, said that what propelled him in evangelism, what, what motivated him to get on his horse and ride all over evangelizing, he said he had a strange warmth. I think that's another way of saying he was fervent in spirit. He just had that energy that God gave him. It means to stir up our own minds and to stir up other people's minds in our interactions with them. And we do well to notice where it says in spirit there. This is talking about from within. It's not talking about something we call upon us to come upon us and you know, make us into, transform us into something. It's something that's stirred up from within. It has to do with our disposition, our disposition especially toward other people. There are a couple passages I've referenced there for you, 1 Corinthians 4.21 and Galatians 6.1. Somebody have one of those? 1 Corinthians 4 or Galatians 6? Okay, Dean's got 1 Corinthians 4.21. Who's got Galatians 6.1? Okay, listen to uh, the word spirit here and how it's being used in these two passages. Verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Hey, Paul says, hey, Corinthians, you want me to come to you with a spirit that's feisty <laughs> or a spirit of gentleness? Okay, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. All right, so in the restoration process, you are to have a spirit of gentleness. Okay? So these two passages that talk about our spirit are both in the context of our disposition towards somebody else. What's your spirit like toward that person? And in both of those cases, it was a spirit of gentleness. And here we are called to be fervent in spirit in Romans 12. We're to be fervent in spirit. 
And you see it says serving the Lord or serve the Lord at the end of verse 11. I think that kind of sums up how, what are we doing? We're viewing the whole Christian life as slave service to God. And we're to be diligent, we're to be fervent in our service towards God. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, uh, you get this same idea. I'll read that one. Paul wrote to this young pastor, For God gave us a spirit, that's lowercase s, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Okay. So as we consider our life as service to God, He's given you a spirit. And you are to be fervent in spirit, okay? Thoughts or questions on diligence and fervency? I don't know if that's the noun for fervent, but that's what I made it. (laughs) Okay. All right. Next one, verse 12. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. We are to rejoice in hope. So for the Christian, for you, you are to find joy in life in Christian hope. Where do you look to find joy, to to rejoice? Well, you look to the great hope that we have as Christians. This means finding great gladness in light of the hope God has given you. There's a certain hope that we have as Christians, isn't it? We don't hope like the world hopes. It's not wishful thinking. It's not flip a coin. Or we have really good odds that Jesus is coming back and that we're going to go to heaven. We have certain hope, don't we? And we can rejoice in that hope. You can't rejoice in wishful thinking. That's called lying to yourself. (laughs) Uh, Or that's called uh, creating some sort of a hollow hope. We have certain grounded, rooted hope. And we're going to talk a lot about that today as we consider the resurrection of Christ. But this is... uh, This word for joy, you know, a lot of times I'll hear people say, well, you know, let's clarify. Joy isn't happiness. Joy and happiness aren't the same thing. That's true. But you can't walk around just like a sour person all the time and say you've got the joy, 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 joy down in your heart. (laughs) And you're just grumpy at everything. (laughs) I've got joy, but I'm not going to be happy. It's, like, it's almost like some people want to use that as, as an excuse to just not be happy. I, I think there's gladness in the Christian life, don't you? Yes. There should be gladness. We should be smiling people. We have grace. We're the only people in the world, and I'm including all the atheists out there and all the secular progressives too. We're the only people in the world who's not under the burden of a law. Does that make you happy? That should make you happy. So we have an ultimate hope that, of course, we will always be with the Lord. He will make all things right. We are to comfort one another with these words, 1 Thessalonians 4. And we also just read in 1 Corinthians 13 recently, love hopes all things. It's a, it's a lifestyle for the Christian, that not that we're naive, but that we hope the best for all things in this world. Not just that we have this certain hope of the future, but even between now and the coming of Christ... We're still hoping all things, hoping for the best in creation itself. Practically, day to day, we hope the best in faith. Well, that's a function. That's a part of the definition of love is hoping and looking for the best. Yes. Yes, you don't think the worst. You think the best. You guys remember Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1? What was Hannah up to in 1 Samuel 1? She was being... Provoked by her sister bride, wife, and uh, she was crying in distress to God. Okay, so Hannah's barren. She's barren and she's praying for a child, right? And then she has this interaction with Eli, the priest. He thought she was drunk because she was she was just babbling her prayers and he was seeing her far away. Then he found out what was happening. And do you remember what he said to her? Lord, grant you your petition. May God give you the desires of your heart, essentially, is what Eli said to Hannah. And then do you know what the what it says Hannah did next? She cleaned up and happily went home. Her face changed. She was sad. She had no hope. I'm not having a child. I'm not getting pregnant. 
And then Eli, the priest, says, may God grant you your petition. And she made her face glad. She had hope. This is what hope should do. Hope should make us smiling people, right? And we have a certain hope. We should rejoice in hope. Eighth, persevering in tribulation. Chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, still in verse 12. Be patient or endure, persevere in tribulation. This means abiding in God, even amid great instability in your life. Any of you familiar with instability? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, there are two SGs that I love to talk about when it comes to abiding. <laughs> when it comes to abiding, this is how I define it. You're trusting in a sovereign God. Okay, it starts there. We have the ability to endure just a bunch of cruddy things in life because nothing surprises God and God's in control. Those are two very simple phrases, and I don't mean to be trite or pithy or whatever, but boy, do they mean a lot. <laughs> Nothing surprises God, and God is in control. Are those important doctrines to hold on to when you're going through anything in life, but especially difficult things? Sovereign God and a simple gospel. Those are the two SGs that I associate with abiding. Because you know what else can happen whenever you start going through difficult things and you stop abiding in Christ, you start thinking that it's all up to you to earn back favor with God that He might fix things in your life. Well, God's doing this because I haven't done X, Y, Z. Well, that's not gospel talk, is it? Okay. Now, there is an aspect in which you may be disciplined by the Lord, and you really need to consider that and get counsel from people in your life. But you can also you can start to bargain with God. You know those stages of depression, bargaining? Does God bargain? <laughs> what is that? You start drifting away and getting weird thoughts. I've been there. Don't know if you've been there, but I've been there. And when we abide, we're trusting not only in a sovereign God, but also we're remaining in that simple gospel. Even though there might be affliction and distress and tribulation in life. Paul, of course, learned this trait very intimately in his life. Someone have 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5? Who's got 2 Corinthians 1? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Verse 5 is so beautiful. Just as the sufferings of Christ are yours. Well, that doesn't sound nice. But something else is coming because it starts with just as, right? The sufferings of Christ are yours. Just as the sufferings of Christ are yours, so is the comfort of Christ. God's comfort is yours in Christ. Isn't that a great hope? Shouldn't that propel you to abide amid tribulation, abide and trust in God? Joe. I've had a tough week. And I'm thinking, is God testing me? <laughs> I don't know. You want me to tell you? <laughs> I can't answer that one for you. But what I can tell you is endure through tribulation. Because just as the sufferings are yours in Christ, so is the comfort. <laughs> Knowing that God is in control, God's in charge, this isn't taking God by surprise, and He's ordained this very thing to be happening to you, all these circumstances, He ordained it. And His affections toward you are exactly the same today as they were yesterday, and they're going to be the same tomorrow. Because you're in Christ. I keep saying God's in control. There you go. <laughs> Good. Good. And it's a simple statement, and it's not like a mantra that hypnotizes us. It's a truth that corrects us, isn't it? God is in control. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Someone have that? I've had it. Okay, go ahead, whoever said that. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. Paul learned how to persevere in tribulation. He had to learn it, just like we all have to learn it. Okay? And he, what an amazing statement that he can say, I have learned. There are very few things that we are confident enough to say about ourselves. Oh, I've learned this or that. Because we constantly get bombarded with new things. It's like, oh, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Well, Paul says he's learned to be content. And we have to battle certain lies. We have to battle certain temptations, specifically when we're enduring affliction or tribulation. You have to do battle in your mind during those times. Because you're going to start to get away from these ideas. You're going to start going to bad places. So you've got to remind yourself of the truth of God. And the best way to do that is to surround yourself with people who are going to bring you to God. Because if you try to do it on your own, you're, you're just going to have a hard go with it, okay? Ninth, devotion to prayer. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. ESV says, be constant in prayer. This is a pattern that was set forth by the early church. If you look with me at the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, look for this word devoted. Look for what they're doing with prayer. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. The book right before Romans. Acts 1, 14. It says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. There you see, shortly after the ascension of Christ, they're devoted to prayer. They're all together and they're praying. Go to chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Again, look for the word devoted, look for the word prayer. It says, and they, this is the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Devoted to prayer. Go to Acts chapter 6, turn a couple pages more. Acts chapter 6, we'll look at verse 4. The apostles said, we need people to serve the widows food. And someone may have asked, well, what are you guys going to do? <laughs> verse 4. <laughs> Acts 6, verse 4. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. If you were to pick one job in the Christian life, which is impossible to do, don't do this. But if someone said, what's the most important thing for a Christian to be doing? Prayer should be up there. It should be pretty, it should be in contention for that most important spot on the list. Scripture doesn't tell us how often. Scripture doesn't tell us how long our prayers are to be. Scripture doesn't tell us the content of our prayers dictated out word for word for you. But it tells you what? Be devoted. Continually. Continually. Be constant in prayer. That's the Christian goal. So don't give up on developing a, a prayer life or prayer habits. Okay? We are to have that habit as Christians, to be devoted to prayer. And we're to never stop praying. This is a great quote from David Mathis. He wrote, The great purpose of prayer is to come humbly, expectantly, and because of Jesus, boldly into the conscious presence of God to relate to Him, talk with Him, and ultimately enjoy Him as our great treasure. David Mathis, that's a great quote on what prayer is. That's a great definition of prayer. We're relating to him, talking with him, and ultimately enjoying him as our great treasure when we pray. As you look at verse 12, Romans 12, 12, can't you see how these three things are tied together? Rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, and being constant in prayer. Those three things find themselves together a lot in the events of your life, don't they? Those three things. That's a good reason, Joe. Yeah, there you go, Joe. Memorize Romans 12, 12 today. It's Joseph's idea. <laughs> All right, two more. We may, we may finish this today. All right, two more. In verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. This means to share with someone else. In this case, it means to share the burden with someone else. Sharing in the burden. What are we doing over there, Andy? I don't know. Oh. Okay. You think terrorist attack? Yeah. We are to contribute to the needs of the saints. 
we, us, we must share the burden for the needs that exist in the fellowship. This is true partnership in life. We're to have a true partnership together in life. Not going it alone. Some of you have tried going it alone. Doesn't work out very well, does it? You, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. There's help in a multitude of saints. And we must be aware of each other's needs. We have to have an awareness of the needs that exist. If we're going to fulfill this, we've got to know what's going on, don't we? How do you contribute to the needs of the saints if you're ignorant of the needs of the saints? <laughs> you can't do it. Look at Philippians 4.10. I'll read it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes to this church in Philippi saying, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Listen to this. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. That church was ready. They had a concern. They were, they were ready to give, ready to contribute to the needs of this one particular saint, at least, Paul. And then when opportunity arose, they were ready to contribute, ready to give. And this is the heart of church life. Again, back in Acts, we can look at two different passages, Acts 2 and Acts 4. Someone want to read these two passages in Acts? Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4? Chapter 2. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all, as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right. So does, does God call us to live a communal life together exactly like this? Well, no, that's not a calling that's on the church for all time. And uh, I mean, this isn't even a command. This is just a description. And there are some movements out there that say this is what we're all supposed to be doing. And they all it's usually a bunch of guys with dreadlocks and they get together and they don't shower. But <laughs> is there a principle here that carries over? Yes. Selling the possessions, sharing with one another, contributing to each other's needs. That's the principle that continues. Okay, and what a great example. I mean, that's a pretty radical example, but what a great example. And we see it again just two chapters later, Acts chapter 4, 32 to 35. Someone have that? I do. Okay. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Again, radical example. This gives us more detail than chapter 2. Radical example of contributing to the needs of the saints, right? Everyone was covered. Everyone was covered this way. So this is to the needs of the saints, not... Yes. So this Good. is yes. Christian to Christian. Right. <clears throat> Very important to note that in Paul's instruction there, contributing to the needs of the saints. Now, it doesn't say contributing to the needs of the world. But does that mean we ignore the world? No. But what this means is you have a priority. Galatians 6.10 As you have opportunity, do good to all people, especially those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6 says. Okay? So there's a priority. You do good to all people, but especially those who are of the household of faith. And your life should reflect that sort of care, concern for God's people. That's the heart of gospel love, isn't it? is to contribute to others' needs, sacrificing your own and caring for one another. And then lastly, verse 13, it says to practice hospitality. We're to practice hospitality. <clears throat> now the word there, uh, just woodenly translated, means to love the stranger, to love strangers. But I think Paul still has in mind here the Christian church. We're to practice hospitality within the church. Christians among Christians. 
It's to serve others. What does hospitality mean? Well, it means to serve others by welcoming them in. It's to meet their needs and to go beyond meeting their needs. That's what hospitality is. It's to impart comfort to a stranger. Imparting comfort to someone else. Now this was particularly important in the first century. Because the first century didn't have any best westerns or comfort inns or anything like that. First century didn't have a McDonald's or a Walmart. This is a different world, wasn't it? Can you imagine just how central hospitality was to just getting along in life? How are you going to get from A to B? Well, you're going to count, especially if you're a Christian, you're going to count on Christians you've never met being willing to practice hospitality. You're not going to be as independent as you could be today. And you think especially back then of missionaries, traveling missionaries. They were getting the gospel out. They were going all over the known world. And they're banking on some hospitality from some people who are along the way, some other Christians. Hospitality means you care for people without the expectation of getting something in return. This is really key. It's without the expectation of getting something in return. Jesus talked about this in a couple of parables saying, don't invite your relatives and the rich people to your banquet. Invite the poor people, the crippled, the blind. They can't give you anything in return. Invite poor people. That's true hospitality when you don't expect anything in return. Hospitality empowers the ministry of other people. It helps sustain other people's ministries. And we see it exemplified over and over again in, in the Bible. But one really uh, prominent example in my mind is Lydia. You remember when the apostles in Acts chapter 16, they went to Philippi. And it said that, it basically says that Lydia's hospitality prevailed upon them. She insisted, you will stay with me. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you a nice bed. You're going to be warm. Her hospitality prevailed upon them. Hey, that's, that's pretty good. We are to have hospitality for one another. Okay. 30 seconds. Thoughts or questions or tomatoes to throw? Uh, one way that we can know better what the needs of our church is to share her requests, which we're trying to gather, right? Um, our, we have a team of people willing to pray for any of the needs in here. And if you want to join our team, we're, we're welcome to that too. But you can email me. It's on the bulletin every week. You can call me, text me. Wayne called a couple weeks back because he doesn't email. But please, please, please be willing to share so that we can serve each other in these ways. So we can contribute to the needs. Because if we don't know, we can't help. So um, share, share those with us. Please, please, please. Jim? Just a comment on the devotion of prayers. How many times have you come to a point where we're exhausted and we say, well, all we can do now is pray. As in, it's hopeless. You know, that's where we should have started. Yep. Is with prayer. We should realize that's the most powerful thing that we can do. All of our worldly abilities is nothing compared to the power of prayer. So, so true. I... In my devotional in the weekly email a couple weeks ago on prayer, I shared a quote from a tiny little motto, really, uh, from a man that I have known. First we pray. First we pray. I'm so, so bad at that. (laughs) But what a worthy, what a Christian motto that is. First we pray. Such a busy day today. I need to start with three hours of prayer. That's right. I have so much to do today, I have to spend the first three hours in prayer. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I guess we've done everything we can do, but I guess you can pray. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yep. Well, very good. Okay, this is a great section, uh, Romans chapter 12. A lot of amazing things to take hold of. And... Uh, uh, Tyler has an even longer section to cover next week. Maybe that'll be a two-parter. <laughs> I went pretty fast today. So thanks for sticking in, in, in there with me. And let's uh, close in prayer as we prayed at first. We did that, right? First we prayed for this class. Uh, let's close in it, and then uh, we'll head on over to the auditorium. God, again, we thank you so much for the day that you have made. And we thank you for the uh, 
the meaning of this day on our calendar that we particularly celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing reality it is that you have done this as a demonstration of love to save those who were your enemies, to bring us into your family, to show us great love and mercy and grace forever and ever. What an amazing thought. God, we love you. We ask your blessing on the service today that you would cause each one of us to grow in various ways and that you would uh, bless the message and the singing that each one of them would, each part of the service would be to the honor and praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.